Hello and welcome to this, the third episode of Medigold Matters. Medigold Health is one of the UK's leading providers of health and wellness solutions to anyone who employs people, making sure that those people are fit, healthy, able to work and well. I'm John Griff and month by month we hear from a variety of people contributing to the Medigold story. This month we profile someone quite new to the company, but who brings an absolute wealth of relevant clinical experience to it. Dr. Kentigan Howarth now leads a team of clinicians for Medigold Health in the southeast of the UK. We met to talk about his own medical background, to discuss how occupational health needs to be positioned at the core of employment considerations, and not simply as an add-on to the package. We also discussed how occupational health could play an increasingly significant role in protecting the NHS itself on the front line. We are looking at a manpower crisis. We are looking at real challenges for primary care. Recent figures suggest that in the next few years, at least one um, senior full-time GP in every single practice across the land will be retiring. Um, and these aren't these, these are people at the top of their game. These are the senior GPs. So a huge uh, a, a huge challenge to to replace that. England uh, occupational health is available to GPs only. So what about the receptionists? What about the the nurse practitioners? What about the um, the physiotherapist? Who is providing that? There is a huge inequity there. That's Dr. Kent Howarth, and this is Medigold Matters. Kent's interest in medical matters began during his own education. As a student at St Andrews, he joined the Royal Army Medical Corps as a cadet before signing on to a military career which saw him deployed with Her Majesty's forces at battalion level. On leaving the forces, he became a GP and prior to joining Medigold Health, spent a number of years bringing medicine and education together in the city of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Now he still deals with his clients and patients face-to-face. As he told me, it's something he continues to relish. Absolutely. And, and I, I think, for me, there is nothing better than having a good relationship with your patient, seeing things move in the right direction. Occupational health is nothing unless it helps to move things along. And sometimes um, we can... Um, do uh, intervene or make uh, suggestions that really make a huge difference. And whether that's face-to-face, whether it's uh, video, whether uh, it's, it's remotely down the telephone, the, the sense of, of uh, achievement through delivery of, our, uh, of, of what we've been trained to do is very, um, is very satisfying. Kent, there's a, a dividend that has come... In, in recent years, shall we say, from the work of the medical corps, the work of medical people within the military deployed into places like Afghanistan. And a lot of those techniques have now started to find their way into, into civilian life. How do you feel that the military has influenced new thinking and new practice, not only in terms of physical medicine, but also mental medicine as well? We're, we're far more... Um, aware of post-traumatic stress disorder. We're far more prepared to talk about it in this day and age. We've only recently had World Medical uh, Mental Health Day. How do you feel that all of that has paid into the hands of occupational health and the dividend that then comes from it? Absolutely. Military medicine in war and peace has had a huge uh, has made a huge contribution to advancement in in medical science um, 
you know, in time immemorial. You know, we're talking, um, you know, before the Christian era and Hippocrates, all the way up to um, more more recent times. Um, you know, stemming from. Uh, the development or the refinement of triage during the the Napoleonic uh, Wars. Um, public health has been a huge uh, leap forward since the days of Florence Nightingale and the and and um, uh, Mary Seacole in the in the Crimea. Tropical medicine, um, Leishmaniasis, um, William. Uh, Leishman discovered that and discovered the link with with sand flies um, while he was working with the British Army in in India. Nutrition. Um, I spent some time uh, in in the Navy, and and nobody who's ever uh, been in the um, in the Navy medical services will uh, not have heard of a chap called uh, James Lind, who was a uh, a pioneer of na- naval hygiene and discovered the link between. Um, scurvy and um, and and uh, citrus fruits, uh, citrus fruits, or, or the lack of causing scurvy. Um, communicable diseases very topical now. Vaccinations. Um, typhoid uh, was developed um, uh, over a hundred. Typhoid vaccine was developed over mm-hmm. over a hundred years ago, and in an interesting parallel with. Um, with, with with today and vaccine uptake, um, I was reading recently that um, back in the uh, in the early nineteen uh, hundreds, um, typhoid the typhoid vaccine was made available, but it wasn't made compulsory yet. Through a public health campaign um, in the uh, in the army, they got up to about ninety percent um, vaccination uh, c- uh, coverage, and for the first time in uh, in the First World War, um, uh, disease was not the primary cause of, of 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 death, and and I think that's that's a huge contribution that the, the uh, military medicine has made to con- contemporary medicine. But you you mention uh, or you, you you alluded to some of the primary issues uh, that we face in in occupational health today, which is rehabilitation um, following physical injury, um, but also rehabilitation following um, mental health injury, and uh, again looking at the lessons learned uh, from. Uh, horrendous injuries in 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 all wars but particularly in in the first and second uh world wars the development of um of of a really joined up approach to rehabilitation and prosthetics uh was driven by uh, through necessity um but also mental health and post vietnam era um post traumatic stress disorder which which became um uh, more recognised uh, then, even though uh, battle shock was known in the in, in the in the earlier part of the century, um, that has really uh, led to a, a much greater understanding uh, of both uh, uh, diagnosing and treating um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Which, uh, for the frontline services, whether that's fire, police. Um, military is something that um, uh, is is prevalent and really responds well to the right type of treatment. It's fascinating to hear you talk about what to me as a layman and as a civilian sounds like small steps from the military's perspective, like diet, like vitamins, like mm. what we learn from, from day-to-day life. 
We are sitting right now at a time when, in medical terms, occupational health, medical care, both are about as high profile as they have ever been. And I don't mean just in terms of a word that none of us really used two years ago, namely pandemic and COVID-19, a word that was far more frequently used, but was equally, in its fullest sense, a real killer. Flu has been on a lot of lips recently uh, in a way that it wasn't last year there was very little in the way of flu last year mm. thanks to coronavirus and, and, and covid19 what's your view about flu and the vaccination program that goes with it because we constantly hear there is a vaccination available for it you should have it and yet we also hear people who turn their backs on taking something that is available to them that could genuinely save their lives Absolutely. So I, I, first of all, I'll say I have booked my flu vaccine. I um, uh, will need to check my diary, but I think it's sometime later this month. And because I'm uh, the ripe old uh, age of 54, I get it free. So I will be returning my free vaccine voucher to age HR. has its benefits. Age has its benefits. <laughs> um, you, you might expect me to uh, respond by saying I cannot see why anybody would not have have the vaccine. Um, there are some people who shouldn't have the vaccine, those who have severe allergic reactions to previous um, vaccinations. Um, but I understand also that even if you, um, uh, also people with, with vaccines to, um, uh, to uh, with allergies to eggs, um, there are low egg or egg-free vaccine variants that are available. So um, speak to your pharmacist if you're, if you're, if you're uncertain. But vaccinations, um, specifically looking at flu vaccinations, um, are there to prevent you from becoming sick in the first place. They, uh, the flu vaccines will prevent you, uh, if you do get flu, uh, even having had the vaccine, it will prevent you from becoming seriously ill, prevents hospitalizations, um, and it also is uh, helps um, as a preventive tool people with chronic health conditions, um, prevents deaths in children, and um, also illness, uh, se severe illness before, uh, during and, and after pregnancy. And most importantly, I think, um, collectively, it helps people around you. And for those people who can't take the vaccination, I think there is a, uh, a responsibility on those who can take the vaccine to do everything that they can to prevent them, so to prevent them from, from becoming unwell. And I think there's lots of parallels there between the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine and any vaccine that is, that is, is highly transmissible in the community. Kent, you're talking about prevention being better than cure there. And there's an implication for protecting the NHS, because if we get those vaccinations, we're not going to end up in front of our GPs. And we'll talk about the lot of GPs. There's also a reference in there that you made to talk to your pharmacist rather than talk to your GP. And we can pick up on that as well a little bit later on. But that note about prevention being better than cure, we're going in towards the latter part of autumn. Winter will be around fairly soon. We're on short days and long nights. When it comes to occupational health, if prevention is better than cure, and clearly it is, what should business owners do to ensure that their employees remain healthy and therefore effective at work? That's a, that's a really insightful question um and and i think the answer comes from uh what, what comes comes from um studies and uh and and up-to-date evidence uh from 
um, the academic centres around uh, around the world, particularly particularly Finland, who are leading the way um, in uh, in universal access or or highly dispersed access to, to occupational health. Um, my answer to your question is that I would uh, recommend that all business leaders um, push occupational health to the top of their uh, agenda, um, make it a board level um, uh, topic, uh, a, a, a recurring feature, a recurring agenda item, um, because investing in occupational health and regarding it as um, an investment rather than a cost uh, is, is, is going to uh, Bring bring huge benefits. It has been um, and and makes a huge amount of business sense. I don't think there's any uh, dispute about that. It, it has been said that annually the the uh, we lose about uh, approximately a hundred billion pounds per year to to uh, illness, and that's uh, equivalent to. A, uh, uh, the, the the annual budget for the for the NHS. So we are running two NHSs here in terms of in terms of the cost. We've got a the real NHS and a doppelganger uh, NHS. And it absolutely makes sense that uh, all businesses uh, invest in uh, occupational health services. Some will be able to afford. Um, uh, you know, a, a a broad offer, and others will be able to um, um, will not be able to afford exactly uh, uh, what is what other people uh, the the, um, the more uh, uh, wealthy companies are, are able to provide. But anything uh, in terms of um, accessing occupational health, I think, is is something that we can that organizations can um, invest in particularly from rehabilitation and a mental health perspective you talk about investment versus cost if i can ask you to put a slightly more business orientated hat on rather than a clinician's hat mm-hmm. uh, or greens or blues or whatever color mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. if we talk about the package every employee thinks about the package in in terms of more than just the pay packet so the package now includes a whole series of other things and i've spoken to people in the past when it comes to the recruitment and then holding on to the staff who are the most important asset of any business the package well-being as part of that package physical and mental well-being as well they've perhaps never been quite as fundamental to a person's employment as they are now in terms of retention but also attracting people to to, to businesses should that be available and is it sufficiently well available to all levels within any business large small medium whatever it might be because clearly there is a cost implication to that has business woken up to the investment and then to the dividend of providing occupational health for staff well I, we we in occupational health have been um, uh, brought up on the notion that in the UK currently about 50% of businesses have access to occupational health services, professional occupational health services, 50% don't. That figure has recently been revised downwards and it is likely that um, it is south of 30% of businesses um, have access to to what we would describe as high quality um, professional occupational health services. So on the one hand, 
businesses recognize the um, the uh, the investment opportunity here, investing in your people, investing in occupational health, um, to drive down sickness absence, to promote wellness, um, and uh, but on the other hand, we see that uh, very few um, in in terms of the total business uh, businesses in the UK are uh, have access to it. So there's some disconnect there. The, the, the government's response to um, health is everyone's business um, is seeking to address that. Um, and there is reason, very good reason, to be hopeful that things are going to be moving in the right direction. Um, the Society of Occupational Medicine, you might imagine, is very uh, supportive of um, uh, universal access to occupational health. Um, there are... Uh, some some commentators will say that back in 1948, occupational health should have been made part of the of the NHS offer, mm. um, but it wasn't. Um, that said, we are where we are, and um, looking abroad uh, in the in the the Nordic countries, particularly uh, Finland, we can see how they have a really swept up, coordinated, um, funded. Uh, occupational health offer for all their uh, for, for all employees, um, and that's that's uh, um, something that figures are, suggest that uh, it can effective joined up um, coordinated um, multidisciplinary occupational health care can reduce sickness absence by up to a half, and the the benefits of that to business should should be very very clear. So the costs of getting into occupational health, whatever the size of your business, and here I'm, I, 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 I cast the question for those who perhaps run smaller businesses rather than larger businesses, for whom therefore that financial investment mm. might be a sizable one. It yeah. might be a, a, you know, a sizable part of their, of their profit margin, for instance. Nevertheless, you would advocate put that spend into occupational health. It will pay its own dividends in the longer term. One hundred percent, and we need to look to government to come up with um, with with um, policies and um, support for those companies, those those enterprises who hitherto would not have looked towards occupational health for support. Not necessarily because they don't want to, but because they don't understand um, the potential benefits or simply uh, cannot, have, cannot, have, cannot afford it. Mm. But I would say, um, turn that on its head, I would say that boards, business owners must um, consider the, the, the alternative. You know, can they afford not to have occupational health? As, a, as, as, as we all know, worklessness... Uh, which can result through uh, not having uh, uh, um, joined up, access to joined up occupational health. It, worklessness is the single most important factor uh, in health inequality, social deprivation, mortality. Um, and I would put it to all business owners in the UK um, whether or not, with that backdrop, uh, w- whether or not uh, it is. Um, uh, whether or not they can afford not to have access to occupational health. Kent, I want to take you back to your GP days, if if I may. When you consider what 
used to come through the door, arguably what still comes through the door to this day and age. We live in times now where health is very much uppermost in people's thoughts, uh, be it in terms of coronavirus, be it in terms of the flu, be it in terms of just general well-being. What is your take on, on the health of the nation? And by extension from that, what is the health of the workforce of this country now from what you've seen in the past? Are we, are we a, a nation of the worried well or genuinely do we have health issues? Well, I was recently uh, um, watched a, uh, a really, really interesting uh, webinar series hosted by the, um, the, the Society of Occupational Medicine. And Professor uh, Maggie Ray, who's the, the current president of the uh, Royal College of Public Health, um, suggested that the UK uh, was um, becoming one of the most unhealthy uh, nations uh, in Europe and that health outcomes uh, and employment were inextricably linked. Um, I can't give you any... Uh, any any more up-to-date uh, data um, to back up uh, th- that, that assertion. But it rings true. And I think from COVID, uh, the start of the COVID pandemic, um, there has been uh, certainly an epidemic, uh, tragically, of uh, um, mental health um, concerns. Um, and there also has been, by uh, through dint of lack of um, uh, access to uh, uh, screening services, lack of access to what we would, um, under normal circumstances, take take uh, for granted that we would have access to secondary care, uh, we would have um, access to all the healthcare provision that we would normally have expected. Um, we are seeing a pent up uh, demand for. Uh, for medical services um, born out of ill health because of the the uh, impact of the pandemic. That must mean, therefore, that occupational health, health in the workplace, must be a tremendous way to head off issues that might otherwise expand into society when it comes to health. It's a great way to well, for want of a better phrase, nip the issue in the bud by cashing it at the earliest possible opportunity. And to do it from an employer's perspective, that ties in the employee to the business. The employer genuinely has more than a simply holistic view of, of someone's well-being because actually, if you can keep them healthy, they, ca- they carry on working and they're more productive. Absolutely. I, the whole narrative now is moving uh, or has been uh, focused on, on prevention rather than cure. From an occupational health perspective, keeping people at work rather than fixing them is is where we needed where where we need to be um, uh, headed. This is where the universal access to occupational health, um, uh, supported by um, certainly the occupational health and and gathering uh, momentum, gaining traction within um, uh, w- within government, is where we need to be going. I don't think there is any any suggestion that uh, we can't move in that direction we must move and move in that direction mm. um, the workforce is getting older the multi-morbidity uh, or the number of illnesses um, that people uh, over 50 uh, have um, is 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 quite striking if you if you look at, at, at recent statistics and we need an integrated system we need to break down um, these silos 
in in healthcare. There is no point um, a uh, a, 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 an employee who works in a in a, uh, in a in has a physical a strenuous physical role who breaks his or her leg, getting it fixed uh, to world class standards, and then not having access to rehabilitation. Rehabilitation should be, in my view, uh, and and this is shared with uh, others. Um, should be part of the offer, should, should be an integral part of the NHS offer. And occupational health uh, traditionally can provide um, uh, um, uh, that, kind of, that kind of support. We've been accustomed to senior politicians, uh, health secretaries, prime ministers, advisors to the government saying that the prime need is to protect the NHS, one of the jewels of our modern day society. And, and clearly they are talking about the pandemic, but they could be talking about flu. They could be talking about occupational health and so on. GPs for the general public, generally speaking, I think it's fair to say, are the embodiment of the NHS. And yet they are the first line. They are the frontline troops, if you like, when it comes to medical practitioning. They are now being criticised. One of the biggest criticisms of GPs and the medical community right now is the ability of patients to be able to see them. It's, it's very easy to say, go and talk to your GP. There's been a lot in the press recently about access to GPs or a lack of access to GPs. Our psyche tells us that we should be able to go through the door and see a GP straight away. There you are as a GP uh, practitioner in your own right how do you feel about the way GPs are now being perhaps criticised by a government which, which seems to point the finger, says it's putting £250 million to, in to support GPs, but telling GPs effectively to get their houses in order and make themselves more um, available to the general public? What is, your, what is your view as it applies to occupational health and as a GP in your own right? Um. So I'm not. I, I I left general practice in in 2005 uh, to to retrain in in occupational medicine. But I loved my time in general practice, um, and I have always been a, uh, a a great supporter of of general practice. As you say, they are the frontline troop. They are in the trenches. Uh, they're the paratroopers of the uh, of the um, uh, of of, of uh, primary healthcare within. Um, in 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 the UK, um, that's not to say that everybody within healthcare has not been uh, affected in, to some degree or, or another. And the huge con- contribution from all um, from from uh, all uh, um, parts of the of, of the NHS uh, has has kept this uh, nation moving forward in terms of um, the provision of, of healthcare in in the best way that they possibly can. Um, you, I think, are referring to the, uh, the recent um, offer uh, of £250 million uh, to uh, improve access, not just improving access, but other things uh, uh, for in, in, in primary care. Um, and that comes as a carrot, but there, are also, uh, there is also a, a stick 
Um, and uh, again, not wanting to make too too much of a political um, uh, commentary on this, the, 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 there are those who support it, and there are you know equally many uh, who don't support it, um, particularly uh, the, the the British Medical Association. And I I can see both both sides of the story. But what I do see is that. Um, we had to change, or general practice had to change its model at the start of the pandemic. It was encouraged to change its model at the start of the pandemic. Um, and now it is being asked to do um, almost completely completely the, the opposite. Um, the, the, the polls suggest uh, that um, the majority of people, 80% plus people, are happy with uh, the, the current uh, um, um, offer from from general from general practice, uh, indicating uh, that uh, things the, the the new model has been accepted to to a large to a large degree. But two thirds uh, of um, of of people are still um, would prefer uh, doesn't say insist, but would prefer to have face to face appointments. Um, but what we are looking at here is a real crisis in primary care, um, and and this is driven by by manpower uh, constraints. Two hundred fifty million pounds for locums, for podiatrists, for physiotherapists um, is not unwelcome, but it's the the, the value uh, the, the the converted value into um, more. Uh, face-to-face appointments um, is going to be limited by the availability uh, of uh, professionals uh, to to deliver that service. And if they're not there, it's going to be very difficult to um, provide what the government want us to what what they want GPs to provide. Well, exactly. I, I've spoken to my own GP uh, about circumstances like this, and he's saying that the industry, the business, the sector is losing GPs. That's one thing. Retirement is one thing. Recruitment of new GPs, the creation of new GPs through through further education, if that isn't going at speed, then there's going to be a shortage of GPs, which means that the existing pressure that GPs are under is only going to increase. I mean, should there be occupational health for the medical community? Are their needs being properly met? I, I think that is such such a uh, there's such a need for that. Um, physician heal thyself. Physician heal thyself. We are looking at a manpower crisis. We are looking at real challenges for primary care. Recent figures suggest that in the next few years, at least one um, senior full-time GP in every single practice across the land will be retiring. Um, and these aren't these, these are people at the top of their game. These are the senior GPs. So a huge uh, a, a huge challenge to to replace that. And it it would be. Um, I, I I don't think this is lost on the government. But what we need to see is uh, is real movements in 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 that direction. But you asked about occupational health offer for. Uh, the, the 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 you know our frontline mm. uh, troops mm. um, in in primary care. Uh, Twenty sixteen um, saw uh, some um, uh, uh, moves towards improving uh, occupational uh, health access to uh, those in primary care. Scotland have pretty much got that sorted. Wales are. Uh, are, are, have plans to make occupational health available to everybody in primary care. 
England uh, occupational health is available to GPs only. Um, secondary care has access to occupational health, but in primary care, GPs only. So what about the receptionists? What about the, the nurse practitioners? What about the, um, the physiotherapists? What about the parent? Who is providing that? There is a huge inequity there. Um, and when we look at how much we lean upon primary care and occupational health to um, support uh, our patients, whether it's in, in uh, signposting for mental health, whether it's in accessing um, rehabilitation or physiotherapists, physiotherapy. We rely upon the GPs more than we, more than we realise, and we should be supporting them more than we than, than we are. The whole general practice team I'm referring to. So, if GPs are the frontline troops for the NHS, and if the Prime Minister is encouraging us as members of the public to protect the NHS wherever possible. Ken, what you're actually saying at the same time is that business owners have their role to play in that through occupational health and that occupational health itself can be a protector of the NHS going forward and therefore the costs that go with it, which candidly we all contribute to, to keep the NHS where it is. Yeah, and and this goes back to to the package. Um, Can we... uh, lift some of the burden from 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 uh, general practice there part of the the 250 million offer was that um, uh, people professionals health professionals other than GPS uh, would be looking at um, the the fit note re- um, responsibilities DVLA DVLA checks um, possibly looking at um, increasing the number of allied health professionals who can deliver some of the traditional uh, uh, primary care uh, general practice uh, uh, doctor-led doctor-led functions. So that's all really good news. But should we, uh, should companies be looking at um, um, creating a truly holistic occupational health um, um, offer, a, a platform for uh, um, uh, for, for promoting and preserving the health of their employees by improving access uh, making more accessible rapid access to um to 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 the the crocodiles closest to the canoe which are uh, mental health and rehabilitation some companies do i worked for a little while uh, for a bank uh, in london before moving out to after leaving the army and moving out to saudi arabia the package was incredible um, not everybody can afford that but i saw it firsthand how coordinated uh, cooperative um, well-resourced uh, um, provision of what workers need can really pay pay dividends and we should be moving towards that kind of offer uh, in, uh, in, in, in the NHS. We should be able to offer something for our people that doesn't involve months and months of waiting. From the horse's mouth and hugely enlightening. Kent, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. That's Dr. Kent Howarth, Medigold Health's lead clinician for the southeast of the UK. And my thanks to him for taking the time to talk to me. That's all for this episode of Medigold Matters. Thanks for taking the time to listen and I hope you enjoyed what you heard. There are other episodes which you can listen to as well at your leisure and more to come in the near future. 
do join me again in a few weeks' time. But until then, goodbye. Thank you.